Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books and Education channel. I'm your host, Julie Callio, and today we have the author and educational leader, Jim Rickabaugh, here to talk with us about his book, Tapping the Power of Personalized Learning, a Roadmap for School Leaders. Jim is currently a senior advisor to the Institute for Personalized Learning in southeastern Wisconsin, though he worked previously as a classroom teacher, building and district administrator, author, and consultant for the last 40 years. In our conversation today, he gets at the heart and vision of personalized learning, ranging from the big ideas of change to the honeycomb model for changing daily practices. His book is both practical and visionary for personalized learning, education reform, and the future of American education. I know you'll enjoy this inspiring conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Education. I'm Julie Callio, a new host for the channel, and today we're going to be talking to Jim Rickabaugh about his book, Tapping the Power of Personalized Learning, a Roadmap for School Leaders. So, Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here today. And I should say that I've been part of a research group working with Jim for the last three years and his work at the Institute for Personalized Learning, so I'm really excited to interview him today. So the first part, how did you come to write this book? Well... Well, actually, it's a, a fairly long story, but I'll make it. I promise to make it short. The book itself is a—I was going to say culmination, but I think it's a—it's um, a midpoint in an ongoing journey. <clears throat> For the last, gosh, almost ten years now, particularly a group in southeastern Wisconsin has been interested in how we might redesign some of the sort of core work in in schools. Um, I was going to say core work in learning, but actually what we know about learning is as old as the ages. Mm-hmm. We've just uh, abandoned a lot of it in an industrial model. And so it's really sort of this idea of if we put aside our assumptions embedded in the, in the industrial model and ask ourselves what we really know about teaching and learning, is there a way for us to reach more learners, to reach them more deeply, um, to inspire them as opposed to have them simply follow adult direction um, if you will, change the equation. So uh, we spent a lot of time, and it's actually grown well outside of southeastern Wisconsin, and unfortunately there are lots of other people around the country and now around the world that are asking similar questions. So the book uh, was intended, or is intended, um, at one level to sort of chart the journey, our journey of learning about um, sort of redesign and then the implications that might have for teaching and learning. Um, and to share the, the sort of learning along the way. It is along the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've learned a, a great deal. And in fact, sometimes um, it's humbling to think how much practitioners and learners have taught all of us mm-hmm. about the sort of core work of learning once we let go of some of the structures that have held us in place so that we can actually use the research that's been out there in many cases for some time mm-hmm. Uh, but not applied in the classroom because it was awkward in the sort of industrial model. Once you take that structure off, many of the things we've struggled to implement from research become natural processes. And so um, part of the book was was to capture and share 
Um, beyond that, the book um, is intended to be a resource, a discussion starter, an idea generator, um, a, a sort of a stimulus to try some things. But um, we've known for a very long time that the practices that are part of personalized learning are powerful. Mm-hmm. But getting from knowing that they're powerful and being able to use them in a natural, ongoing, consistent way is a, is a different matter. And so the book is intended to make this shift reachable, um, um, accessible. So talk us through who are those players in Southeast Wisconsin sure. and how did you get to be working with them? Hmm. Well, in the latter part of the last decade, so the late sort of the 2009, 2010, um, there was a sort of growing frustration um, based on the observations that educators are probably working harder than ever any of us can remember under more pressure. At that time, there actually was more money every year, but we still were cutting. It, we sort of had reached this conclusion, now it's sort of with an economic, in an economic frame that said, if, this, if what we were doing was in a product cycle or innovation cycle, we would say it's run its course, it's time to rethink. Uh, and so um, that was actually, that was our sort of launching place to, and said, oh, well, if we were to rethink, and we, would, and we would start by trying to let go of the assumptions we have, where would that lead us? And so, and, and the us I'm talking about are about well, 25 or 30 education leaders, superintendents, directors of instruction, other people who were thinking about teaching and learning, um, spent the, really a year. And that, that, in fact, that formal, that formal group really were superintendents to try and understand what was out there. And I mean out there in terms of the research and the best thinking, people on the front end. What are people thinking about? What are some possibilities? And um, this was also at the time when um, the book Disrupting Class had just come out Mm -hmm. that I think uh, provided some good impetus to rethink, but not answers in terms of of, of what the change might look like. But it was it was a place for us to be able to sort of pull from other endeavors, other aspects of society, try and think about them in the context of education. And we came to uh, what was at, at once both a profound and obvious answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, if we wanted to change the system, we had to change the experience of the learner. Mm-hmm. And that... The system most of us have experienced is a system driven by instruction mm-hmm. with an assumption that learning will result. And that if we turned that around and said we need a system driven by learning, and instruction is a powerful and needs to be flexible resource in support of learning, suddenly many of the things we've assumed about education change. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it looked like the answer to have all students be learners. And so we said, oh, well, okay, what would that look like? So we began initially, and we were, we were fortunate to be part of a, um, an innovation lab network that was, was um, coordinated and still is by the Council of Chief State School Officers that provided, I think, some really good thought support, some convening opportunities, uh, but uh, not, not resources to do it. That was up to us, and I think that was, 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 was a powerful and important aspect. Because it forced us to be careful in our thinking from the beginning because we were using our resources. We weren't using someone else's resources. 
So we were more accountable, I think, more more careful in what we were doing. But what we what we found as soon as we started with that the shift I just described, suddenly learners started to be much more interested and committed to their learning. In fact, um, we found, and this is really pretty consistent, that as learners begin to engage in this sort of an experience, their off-task and disruptive behavior almost extinguishes. There almost goes away because learners are suddenly interested and committed to what's going on. They're not caught up in the disequalization of power distribution that's part of most schools. So uh, we started with... Um, about a dozen schools, school districts that were willing to try. That group has continued to grow uh, over time, and we're now um, the Institute for Personalized Learning that um, I was uh, part of founding, and now I'm a senior advisor to, is serving uh, districts in multiple states um, across the state of Wisconsin, and we've even had some engagement internationally. So it's been it's been great. But, it, but we've never left that core premise that said, sitting right in front of us all the time, has been the most underutilized, most powerful resource available, the learner. And engaging them costs almost nothing, and it's not illegal. I mean, it's (laughs) two of the really, really great things. And so um, what's been marvelous about it is um, watching what happens with learners and then what happens with educators. When they see their work changing lives, Mm -hmm. suddenly students who are deeply engaged, who previously have been even resistant, if not you know, if not, or, or, or had been distracted or distant in the past, who really are suddenly taking their learning seriously, taking ownership for it, seeing purpose in it, um, a growing sense of efficacy around it, um, and 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 on, as a result of that, more responsibility. You know, it's sort of interesting. We say, well, learners don't take enough responsibility. If you think about life, we take responsibility for what's important to us. So unless we make learning important to the learner. It's not really a very good bet that they'll take much responsibility. But when they do, suddenly they want the responsibility. They seek the responsibility rather than uh, wait for it to be imposed. So that's sort of, I know I wandered around here a lot, but that's kind of the milieu yeah. of, the, of the work. Yeah, and that's actually a nice transition to the book where a lot of what you're talking about sounds very magical and, mm-hmm. yes. and, yep. and wonderful. And you give a lot of great quotes from leaders and you do mm-hmm. some descriptions of what the schools look like that I think really help people get a sense mm-hmm. of what this looks like because it's pretty different. Yes. Um, so you said a little bit about how you'd like the book to be used. Can mm-hmm. you talk about sure. um, kind of the way you set it up, providing people yes. with activities and reflection questions, mm-hmm. um, how could you see this being used yes. in districts? I, I think that um, the book itself can be used in multiple ways, but the sort of uh, the core vision uh, for the work, and I think it's embodied in the title, is this idea of yeah, it's easy to sort of get your head around what the concept might be. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat more difficult to begin to change practice and relationships in a way that make it reality. And so the hope with the book was to share enough research for people to understand its credibility to provide enough content and structure for them to understand what it is, and then to provide lots of um, activities and reflections and um, strategies that that leaders can use. And by the way, um, in our, our sort of thinking about that a small L leader, not necessarily mm-hmm. positional, but anyone who sees themselves and wants to lead, mm-hmm. including classroom teachers, um, to be able to to sort of take this idea and make it real in practice and to, to share some of the 
the cautions along the way, but also the kind of cures, the sort of to help people start on the on the journey, um, and to extend ultimately from a from a even more formal leadership perspective, to begin to think about the application of personalized learning in adult professional learning. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think it's to some extent a naive assumption that we would ask teachers to transform the learning experience of their young learners if we're not willing to, to extend the same opportunity to adults, that within the system there's this sort of need for alignment. And it's hard for me to share and value for others what I've not experienced and, and been able to value for myself. You have a really nice chapter at the end of the book talking about it that, sort of, that yeah. yeah personalizing for teachers and teacher learning. Um, for those who are not as familiar with personalized learning, mm-hmm. how what how could you define it? Mm-hmm. And sure. especially in terms of the context of how people talk about it with technology yes. and that sure. sort of thing. So um, there's a formal definition, but let me give you what I would, for me, the informal sort of what's at the core. Yeah. Um, personalized learning is about developing strong learners, not just good students. Uh, learners that are capable of learning in a variety of circumstances and that have an inclination to do so. I mean, it's one thing to be a skilled learner. It's another to be skilled and constantly seeking opportunities, and that both of those need to be a part of this. So the sort of first aspect is building the capacity of young people to be really powerful learners, flexible, able to do that in many cases without always waiting to be formally taught. So that's sort of one piece. The second is to um, engage them actively in the process. So a a way of thinking about this um, that's deeply embedded in research is having students sort of start with making or start by making goals for their own learning that obviously is, is coached and supported with an educator, but to give students some um, active role or investment in the, in the work. And there's, you know, John Hattie's research and many others have, have spoken to the power of, of learners setting goals for their learning. The second level of that is then say, okay, we have a goal, and this is in, I'm in conferring with the learner, so how are we going to get there? Because it's one thing to set a goal, another to create a path that's, that's accessible, that's possible to get to the goal. And in that conference, often educators share what they will do to support. It might be seminars, could be strategies they're going to teach, resources, but also actively engage the learner in what they'll commit to mm-hmm. so that this is actually a co-owned path. And then from that point to say, okay, well now let's talk about how you're going to know you're making progress. And often learners wait for adults to tell them that. Well, part of the secret of this is to give learners data, help them become good consumers of information, to also track their progress. So it's really co-monitoring of, of that progress or of moving increasingly towards excellence. So that when we engage learners in formative assessment, the learner is a consumer of that information as much as the teacher or the educator. Mm-hmm. And you know, many of the youth clubs have known this forever. And they would do badges, but the power of giving participants or learners information on their progress is very motivating. And then the last part of that, to talk with learners about how they can show what they know, which is really assessment, but to move beyond always just the, the sort of pencil paper or two-dimensional test into um, how am I going to represent my learning? How can I articulate it? 
And that might be through demonstration or performance or even teaching someone else. But that's sort of the centerpiece of that's the action. And the last part of it, sort of the third element from my perspective is that learners progress based on their learning, not based on time, not based on the lessons they were taught, but their actual learning. Whether you want to call that proficiency-based or competency-based or mastery-based, but the idea is that learners need to be moving forward based on what they've learned, not just based on what they've been taught. So I noticed that at no point here you talked about technology and the particular right. platforms yes. or those things, but that it does get it is important. mixed up. It's in, and it is yeah. important. So um, uh, what's, I, I think the confusion often is that people think if we just bring technology into the classroom, that'll be personalized learning and that'll increase learning. Well, one, it's not, and two, it doesn't. Um, I mean, the evidence is, is, is pretty clear that um, despite the fact that American schools are among the biggest purchasers of technology in the world, there's little evidence that purchase of technology and inserting it in the classroom by itself increases learning, which is not to say technology isn't important or even crucial, but um, what, it, what, it, what it does say is how we use technology matters. So what I just described as the definition of personalized learning um, is easily done one-on-one, -on -one. maybe one-on-two, one-on-three. But to scale it, you need to be able to manage information. We need to be able to manage it. The learner needs to be able to manage information. That's where technology becomes critical. In fact, much of what I've just told you, Benjamin Bloom was able to show at the University of Chicago back in the early 1980s. He showed the impact of what I just described. The problem was, in the early 1980s, scaling it was almost impossible. So what I'm talking about today actually has a basis in proof. It's scaling that's our challenge, and that is where technology comes into play. So this is not about putting a student in a corner with technology or even bringing kids to the lab. And, and that's Having said that, technology can accelerate, technology can expand, technology can make it flexible, technology can actually provide a variety of instructional options for learners. Um, so we talk about it as technology supported, um, but not technology driven. Mm -hmm. That it is really a pedagogical shift supported by technology. And that today we really have available to us technology that makes this within reach and probably makes it easy within the next decade. I really believe that within the next decade, we'll look back at the way we have traditionally taught or tried to teach learners and wonder what we were thinking. Yep. Um, because in the name of efficiency, it's been ineffective. And in the sort of the name of reaching everyone, we've failed, we've reached some. That by starting with the learner and, and building, building from that point. What do learners know? What are they interested in? What do they struggle with? That they actually deserve to have instruction that's responsive to their needs mm -hmm. rather than the sort of learn on demand when I'm ready to teach you. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the honeycomb model because that's mm -hmm. really at sure. the center. And you, you go into detail in that in the book. Mm -hmm. And so how is that 
particularly from the standpoint of, I want to make some changes now. Yes. Mm-hmm. How does this help me? So uh, the book presents a, a, a model that's both a change model and, and, and it is also a content mm-hmm. sort of a way to think about it. Um, and we use the honeycomb uh, partially because it is a naturally occurring um, structure and it's nonlinear. And so much of what we do in education is like you've got to do one, then two, three, four. It is, it's actually nonlinear. It starts around three really core sort of elements. One is really knowing the learning learner better than we do now, and the learner understanding him or herself, being really clear about what we want the learner to learn, and then what we talk about in the middle of the customized path is this whole idea of setting goals, building a path, monitoring progress. That's at the core. And then we built out from that um, sort of really powerful research-based instructional practices that support it, with some openings, by the way, so that People can personalize the honeycomb. So if you're doing inquiry-based or project-based learning, there are open cells you can actually insert to make the honeycomb your own. At the next level out is really recognition that this model changes roles and relationship. It changes the role of the learner, changes the role of the teacher, and helps sort of articulate that shift in role and responsibility. Um, and then on the, on, the, on the outer edge are the sort of structures and policies that hold this all in place. And we always say start at the core and build out. Uh, because most reform attempts, in, in at least in America, have tended to be around the structure and policy issue. Let's change the schedule. Let's change the calendar. Let's bring in technology. And research is very clear that those are low-leverage strategies. Having said that, they're important when you've done the other work. Now, what I just described might be overwhelming. So we've devised, actually, a strategy we call Constellations. So it might be that I'll start by working on proficiency-based. Maybe I want to do that. And so around that, uh, I might pull the cell around that relates to learner goal setting. Um, and I might pull uh, around multiple modes of instruction. So I might just work on those three pieces um, until we build enough strength from there to add some others. So it's not doing it all at once, but it's finding kind of where am I because this is a journey. It's, uh, learning is a journey for the learner. It's a journey for us as educators. And so we're all going to be most successful if we start where we are and take the first or next step forward and always be asking ourselves, what's the next step I can do? The honeycomb serves as, if you will, a roadmap to think about process, to think about sequence, but also to make choices about what practice do I want to work on now so that over time, I may be able to incorporate the full amount. The really great news is that most any one of these things, starting at the core, makes a difference, a positive difference for learners. So you don't have to do it all in order to get payback. You can actually start quite simply, but just begin to shift the experience of the learner and the role they play in learning. And, 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 it's, and it is, as you mentioned earlier, magical. It's not magic, but it's magical. Mm-hmm. So... As, you're, as people are making changes, what sort of pushback have you seen happen? And then along with that, what sort of measurements do people use to document sure. the progress and yep. the change? Because I know you talk about that a little bit sure. as well. Well, um, probably the, the strongest and most immediate pushback is very predictable, and that is this is different than I've experienced. And so almost any time when we propose something that's different than the sort of status quo, um, uh, that's hard for people to grasp, especially when the status quo has also been their experience and their training. So to some extent, I think um, uh, uh, that's a bit of a barrier, except that 
almost um, as soon as you begin to talk with them about how well the system works, most everyone agrees it doesn't work well enough for enough kids. Mm. And so, um, I mean, that's a, that, a piece to move beyond. The second is this sort of worry that this feels like letting go of control. By the way, we forget that most all the control we have is, is perceived at any point, if learners decided not to follow our directions, we don't have control. It is a perception. Having said that, um, the, the, what, so I, what I think is remarkable about this is that in letting go of some control, creating space or oxygen, if you will, for learners to take more responsibility, to be more engaged, they almost always welcome and, and are very responsible with it. So we move from this sort of perception of control to the reality of influence where we can coach an influence that has much greater potential to it um, than trying to control every element. And so it actually is a really good trade-off, but it is scary for some educators who've spent their life trying to be good classroom managers. Mm-hmm. And so this shift fundamentally is a shift from classroom manager behavior management to instructional management, which is a much more reinforcing and, and favorable way to go. A third piece that people worry about is, says personalized learning. So does that mean I have to have a, a specific lesson plan for every learner? Well, two things about that. One is that even at a point where each learner has a path, they cluster easily. That learners still, in groups, are often ready for the same work. So you could do seminars in small groups and, and, and um, experienced, um, effective educators have used those for a long time. The second piece that people miss is that in this work, as we develop the capacity of the learner, they become less and less dependent on us moment by moment so that we can be much more strategic about our engagement, much more purposeful um, in that work with learners. So um, it isn't a matter of I'm planning, you know, if I have 25 students, 25 different lessons. I'm actually managing the learning of those students. In some cases, I'm planning. Sometimes I'm coaching. Sometimes I'm mentoring. Sometimes I'm organizing. And frankly, sometimes I'm just watching. Um, And a lot of those descriptions that you give and quotes really speak to this of how teachers are shifting their role um, and leaders then shifting how they are Mm -hmm. supporting their teachers. In fact, it um, it isn't really harder or easier Oh, interesting. It's more effective. In fact, talking with veteran teachers, often they say, I go home at night every bit as tired as I did before. The difference is I go home at night with this sense of satisfaction and impact that I never felt before. And, and they're saying, that's a trade-off I'll take any day. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about from the positional leaders, from principals yes. and superintendents who are who are looking at this, thinking about the book. Mm-hmm. You talk about scouts, pioneers, settlers, <laughs> and saboteurs. And I yes. think that, you know, that sort of model of the different people that you have is, mm-hmm. is out there. But when you look in the context of personalized learning, how do you see leaders leveraging those different? Yep, certainly. So, um, and the, the, that, that metaphor is not new. It's been used mm-hmm. by others in the past. But in this context, from a leader perspective, and just for, for sake of kind of simplicity, let's talk about it from principal's perspective. Mm-hmm. So as a principal, most all of us know um, people on our staff who, given a new idea, a possibility, once they grasp it, often want to go. They want to move out. They don't want to wait for everybody to be ready. They want to go. 
those people are really important in the change process because um, often they're willing to go out without all of the answers clear, not even necessarily all the questions. But they'll go out and engage in the work and can learn really important elements about it. Um, even though they've not scaled it, they're just trying to figure it out. Well, their figuring out um, can be really valuable as they then come back to the rest of the staff to sort of talk about where things are. For those people, um, we need to be in a position possibly to provide some resources, but more than anything, to have their back, to give them a chance to, to do that. And um, to position them to be able to share what they're learning, which is really important to the second group. The, the pioneers tend to be larger in number than scouts. Scouts and, and scouts, by the way, often want to go it alone. That's kind of how they want to operate. And that's okay in that context. Pioneers um, often are interested in what the scouts have learned. And if it looks like it will make a positive difference for learners, they're willing to, to go after it. They want a little more support than scouts and often want to be able to collaborate in the work more than scouts might find absolutely necessary. They don't have to have all the questions answered, but they want to be pretty clear about what the questions are, a way to sort of think about it as a settler pieces. They don't need paved roads and dependable electricity, but they want to know that it's on the way and that, what, that there's enough support out there for them to make a difference. This group is really important because often um, the large sort of group of staff look at the scouts and say, well, they would do that anyway. They're just... But pioneers often, in larger numbers, make it more accessible for the rest of the staff. Which leads me to the settlers. And people often are sort of disparaging of the settlers, saying, well, they're really conservative. This. Actually, they're the key to making this work because they're the people who will scale it, will make it accessible for everyone. And the, the settlers want to know what's expected. They want to know that they're going to have support around professional learning to be able to do it. Now, often they will say, just tell me. And, 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 and we need to have discipline to help them discover and learn, not just follow a recipe. That's how they've been trained and how they experience learning. We need to help them get past that, and that takes some patience. But they ask of the organization that we be clear about how we can support them through professional learning. How can we support their, their work along the way so that um, they can be successful without necessarily being exposed to the risk that scouts and pioneers can tolerate. And so they're really, really important. Um, but there is often among the settlers a group that we've called the saboteurs. And by the way, saboteurs sometimes have, get a bad name because they're often saboteurs. And what I mean by saboteurs are people who sound and look a lot like settlers and will ask similar questions, but their, their motives often are to prevent the initiative from going forward, not understand how. Uh, but they sometimes come by that pretty honestly. In fact, sometimes the saboteurs are very bright educators, maybe even very committed educators, often who've been burned by previous initiatives or innovation that we as leaders fail to give full support to. And so it's important to listen to what they have to say. But it's also important not to let them divert the conversation or sap all of our energy and attention because settlers look at them and may not understand that they're any different from them and may believe that all those questions that are coming up must mean that the answers aren't there. And so uh, with saboteurs, typically best, engage them without an audience. 
um, to be able to really understand what their concerns are and, and in many cases what their fears are. Because often they're very fearful that they're going to try something and it not work or they're fearful that what they know isn't going to translate into the new situation. They're, they're often driven as much by fear as they are anger or resentment. They're, just, they're not sure where they're going to be. So our attention to them needs to be fact-based. It needs to be um, objective, to not get into big fights with them, and to do it out of, the, out of the public square as much as possible. Because those people, if we can turn them around, often can be the champions. But if we create, treat them as enemies, we create them as enemies. In which case, they may never come on board and it may ultimately slow the progress or even undermine it. So it's important that we sort of be conscious of those groups and understand as leaders, each of those groups require our attention in a different way. So I'm feeling like this book is about personalized learning, but it's also really hugely about how you scale change. It's about people. Yeah, and it is about change. And your expertise in terms mm-hmm. of leading regional yes. change is, yep. is coming through yep. in everything yep. you're saying. Um, so to turn to the learners for a moment, what, how do you see personalized learning meeting the needs of the whole range of students sure. from special education yep. or sure. economic disparities? Yep. So let me just sort of give you a, a, kind of as I put it in my head. Yeah. For those students that we often call at risk, mm-hmm. these are kids often who um, resist, who distract. Um, what's, I, what's, I think what's great about this model is that um, to the extent that their disconnect is power-based, this dissipates that. It gives them a voice, gives them a reason to engage, as opposed to um, having to respond to adult direction all the time. And for many of those students, that piece alone makes this attractive. The second is that we can actually start their learning, kind of where they are, and to fill in some of the gaps they have that makes it possible for them to be successful. Because many students who are at risk don't believe they can learn. They don't believe they can be successful, and so they resist it. So for that group, the combination of of changing the power balance so that they're sharing, they're they're in control, we're in control, we actually share that work around their success and the flexibility to be able to go back and backfill some areas they need to and make it really important for them. For culturally diverse students, this model allows us to honor and bring the culture and traditions into the learning, not make assumptions about them, but to actually actually craft their learning path, to be able to be responsible and responsive to what really matters from a cultural perspective. For students with... Uh, with um, IEPs. I mean, traditionally, you know, what's happened is students fail, 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 and finally we say, this student has a problem we need to deal with, and then we as adults get together and try and figure out what to do, and the learner is simply the object throughout. This turns that around and says to the learner, first of all, we're not going to wait until you fail that much before we intervene, because every time learners fail, they often, they're likely to be concluding that they're not a good learner. In many cases, they're just different learners. This gives us the flexibility to address that and to bring the learner actively into the conversation and into the planning so that even though I may have um, a struggle in one aspect of my learning, um, it doesn't mean I'm not a good learner or that I can't develop strategies that, that make that struggle not relevant. For students who are sort of in the middle, you know, the sort of big middle around, this really gives them a reason to invest. 
and takes away the sort of, I'm going through the motions, doing what adults tell me, to inject a sense of purpose around what they're trying to do and to help them build a sense of efficacy that says, look, you can, you can learn really difficult things and I can help you learn the strategies and, and to allocate smart effort and for you to use your resources in ways that can make you successful. And then for those sort of students who, by outward appearances, do really well in school, but we often call them doing schoolers. They're just mm-hmm. sort of, they're going through the motions. Um, and often, um, you know, they're just putting in time because they think that when they get to college or life, things will change. And, and so they end up not, not really benefiting from the experience with, in terms of depth and personal connection. This approach invites them to bring their passion, to bring their interest and to have learning be something that has meaning and purpose in their lives now. They don't have to wait for later. And then for those students who have particular gifts or talents in areas, this gives us the flexibility. If they need to accelerate, we can accelerate. If they need to go deep, we can, we can go deep without having to interrupt or stop the rest of the class. Because we've created an environment within which everyone's learning is important and everyone's learning can be supported. Great. Uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is really important, either from the book or your work? Sure. I, I think we have learned a lot. In many cases, we have brought a lot from what we've known into the sort of marketplace of practice. Um, but, but two things strike me. One is, um, because of that, we are not experimenting. Mm-hmm. I mean, parents, you asked earlier about parents. This idea that we're experimenting with kids, the fact of the matter is the, the model itself, the practices, are deeply embedded in solid, deep research. Mm-hmm. This is a matter of combining them in a way that gives them more synergy. And so this, you know, the idea of people say, well, I don't know, I don't want to be experimenting. This is not about experimenting. It's about using what we know to the advantage of learning and learners. Mm-hmm. The second is... Even though I, f- I feel like we've made a lot of progress, we know a lot, this is a journey for all of us. Mm-hmm. There's more to be learned. And my fondest hope is that people pick up the book, read it, work with it, try it, and then come back saying, here's what else we've learned. Because I think it's, it is, in that sense, egalitarian. Mm-hmm. That there are people with expertise, but anybody can eventually be an expert. And, and, an ec- and as long as they're experts that are willing and committed to continue to learn. Because I think this will always be a journey. And as technology changes, as society changes, as the economy changes, we need to be continue to be flexible in how our schools are designed, how learning is engaged, so that we take advantage of the resources that are available, not chasing shiny objects, mm-hmm. but always testing it against what's best for the learner. And what does it take then to make that whatever that is, accessible and, and, and usable from the learner's perspective. Well, that's actually a really nice transition then to what are you working on now? Where, <laughs> where do you go, go from here? Well, um, actually, the sort of next phase, um, and I'm saying next phase, we're continuing to um, learn and grow and, and refine. So um, a big part of this is uh, the challenge that I said earlier and that's this whole idea of growing, or some people call scaling, although I don't like the word particularly because it, it sounds like structure and it sounds, you know, it's not probably, it's much more organic than that. Uh, but um, how do we help people uh, begin to open up their thinking, to think about other possibilities? And, um, 
and, and ultimately, and I, as I, I think I commented earlier, this sort of thinking is popping up around the country. It's really popping up around the globe. That is, that's how do we glean the best of what we're learning from all of those and make it accessible to people who haven't been a part of that work? Because um, ultimately, from an economic perspective, we need every learner, virtually every learner, um, to be able to be self-sufficient and to contribute actively to our society and economy. And it's, it's pretty clear that the traditional or legacy model we have doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's not the problem of the people in it. It's the system. And so um, our continuing to think about what that means and then ultimately um, to begin to wrestle with the larger policy questions because most policy around education today is based on the industrial model. And as we move forward, increasingly some of the assumptions and structures that have been used to support and govern the traditional model no longer work as well as they did. In some cases, they never really did work that well. And so um, our trying to understand the best approach to policy that honors commitment, that nurtures um, uh, people's passions, and that minimizes the sense of compliance or checklist, which is often the response to policy, particularly when it comes from a state or federal level. Wow. That's a big... So it's a lot of work left. That's yeah, good. Yeah, lots of work to do. Um, well, thank you, Jim, so much for your time today. Um, and thank you. It's been a fun conversation. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. And again, our guest today was Jim Rickabaugh from the Institute for Personalized Learning and his book, Tapping the Power of Personalized Learning, A Roadmap for School Leaders, published by ASCD. As he said, read the book, then get in contact with what you learn. This is a learning journey for all of us. We'll see you next time on the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Julie Callio. Check out this podcast and many others on the New Books Network. Mm-hmm.